On today's show, I discuss MMT, futurist Jacques Fresco's vision of a resource-based economy, Dave Graber's bullshit jobs, automation, unemployment, honoring veterans and working towards a world without war, and a bit about one of my favorite humans ever, who I'd like to dedicate this episode to, Bill Hicks. You're listening to Looking Forward with Michael Bazan, where we take a hard look at the past as well as the present in an effort to construct an amazing future. Your host is Michael Bazan. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the show. I want to thank those who have listened to the first episodes and have been patient while I was doing research for part two of season one, as well as getting prepared to homeschool our amazing daughter and just generally dealing with 2020 life that all of us are. And also thank you for all the feedback and support. Uh, Part one consisted of an introductory episode. Then in episode two, I challenged myself to really ask myself what my beliefs are on a current issue being debated, which was the existence of Confederate monuments all around us. In all honesty, I had no idea that any, more or less the vast number of them, existed all around us. Definitely more evidence of how far our country has strayed from its potential greatness. Then in episode three, which was the last episode of part one, I wanted to preface the rest of the season with the necessary paradigm shift of economic theory and about how we can utilize the existing economic machine in the best way possible and an introduction to some of the tools and metrics that are optimal to monitor and utilize in order to achieve our goals. I want to offer some further clarity here about MMT. Modern monetary theory is a description of how our economic system currently works. The theory in and of itself does not in any way propose how the workings of our economic system should be utilized. Think of it this way. A person can describe to you the way that a car engine works. The fact that the car can perform multiple tasks, good and bad, is irrelevant to the theories that explain how the engine works. MMT is merely explaining how the economic engine of our country and a handful of of other countries with sovereign fiat currency works. That is all. After that point, of course, different people will hold the opinion that our economic engine should be used in one way or the other, but know that MMT is only describing how the economic engine works in countries like ours. Now, it's not a secret that economists and politicians use game theory to better themselves at the game, so to speak. So understanding the rules of a given game is more than beneficial. It's essential. And that is what MMT is for our economy. Now, to be clear, I'm not a supporter of our capitalistic um, economic system. I'd prefer to move past the childlike system that we have now. There are a lot of post-scarcity options to consider, such as true-cost economics, steady-state economy, participatory economics, um, paricon, and uh, natural law resource-based economics, which seems to be the best option thus far. Now, a resource-based economy is an economy that I have always supported, even before I was aware that visionaries and futurists had been working diligently on such things. I mean, I was very familiar with Buckminster Fuller, um, but I was unaware of many other people. I've always believed that our economic system was just outrightly 
ridiculous ever since I was an angsty 15-year-old in 1986 during the decade of greed. Even without a sovereign fiat currency, I'm pretty sure that the majority, if not all nations, could be doing a much better job on behalf of their citizenry. Then, with our resources and fiat currency, there is really no excuse for the fact that we continue to exacerbate detrimental systems and policies towards our own people and the world. Now is definitely the time to harness the power of our existing economic system to stop the free fall of human existence that we are in, and then transition to a resource-based economy. It's not much more difficult than Bill Hicks alluded to in his 1993 show Revelations. He brilliantly said, I hope I do him justice. The world is like a ride in an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real because that's how powerful our minds are. The ride goes up and down, around and around, it has thrills and chills, and it's very brightly colored, and it's very loud, and it's fun for a while. Many people have been on the ride for a long time, and they begin to wonder, hey, is this real, or is this just a ride? And other people have remembered, and they come back to us and say, hey, don't worry, don't be afraid, ever, because this is just a ride. And we kill those people. Shut him up. I've got a lot invested in this ride. Shut him up. Look at my furrows of worry. Look at my big bank account and my family. This has to be real. It's just a ride. But we have to kill the good guys who try to tell us that. You ever notice that? And let the demons run amok. But it doesn't matter because it's just a ride. And we can change it at any time we want. It's only a choice. No effort, no work, no job, no savings of money. Just a simple choice right now between fear and love. The eyes of fear want you to put bigger locks on your doors, buy guns, close yourself off. The eyes of love instead see all of us as one. Here's what we can do to change the world right now to a better ride. Take all the money we spend on weapons and defenses each year and instead spend it feeding and clothing and educating the poor of the world, which it would pay for many times over, not one human being excluded. And we could explore space together, both inner and outer, forever in peace. <sighs> I truly love and miss that guy. And he's absolutely right. In episode 3, I stated that in order to be a strong nation, we need needed a military to be strong beyond our borders and social programs to be strong within our borders. This is absolutely true while we are living in a pre-resource-based economy that perpetuates scarcity. I support our veterans 100% and definitely support our country repaying that debt to them more than it does. But wouldn't a world where we don't have to send men and women to get slaughtered and to slaughter others be a better world? As a student of history, I'm well-versed in the horrors of war. And so many times our troops are killed also by friendly fire. There were so many stories where that was the case in World War II. And I'm sure that scenario exists in any war. The other day I was watching Free State of Jones. And I felt at the beginning aptly captured the horrors of war. It reminded me a bit of Dances with Wolves, just the beginning. Uh, no one can claim that ongoing war is a good thing. Soldiers are either killed or wounded, physically or mentally. I know some may fare better than others and perhaps 
have a lower percentage of physical or mental harm, but I would say such a drastic reality affects everyone to some degree. If we were to move towards a resource-based economy, we could move away from the need to put our brave men and women in harm's way. They could put their bravery to use in some other capacity that would not be so detrimental to them and others, right? Now, uh, one person that has, uh, one futurist and visionary that has, um, well, he passed away, but had basically plans for, for a new society, so to speak, was uh, Jacques Fresco. And Jacques Fresco reminds us that most problems we face in the world today are of our own making. We must accept that the future depends upon us. The future of the world is our responsibility and depends upon decisions we make today. We are our own salvation or damnation. The shape and solutions of the future depend totally on the collective effort of all people working together. Later on in the series, when we talk about money and debt, I will show you how our story of money is false from the beginning, how it is not the evolution or some natural phenomenon that so many economists claim. It's bizarre that we treat our economic system as an organic entity that knows what's best and let it run amok, while this system, which is not organic, destroys ecosystems and life all around the world. That right there is a huge example of just how extremely backwards our thinking is. In your defense, I do realize that it is due to early indoctrination and massive conditioning throughout our lives, but we'll get to that. In my study of history, I recognize the amount of work that has gone in to create our current system of scarcity. I feel that the only rational thing to do at this point is to put in that same amount of effort to create a system of abundance. The ones who believe in perpetuating our current system seem crazy and fanatical to me. I mean, it could not be more obvious that the current systems do not serve us, but we'll go into how the powers that be promote their self-interest to the detriment of ours later in the series. So here's how the, the Venus Project answers what is a resource-based economy? The Venus Project is the, the project of, of Jacques Fresca. To transcend these limitations, the Venus Project proposes we work towards a worldwide resource-based economy, a holistic social and economic system in which the planetary resources are held as the common heritage of all Earth's inhabitants. The current practice of rationing resources through monetary methods is irrelevant, counterproductive, and falls short of meeting humanity's needs. Simply stated, within a resource-based economy, we will utilize resources rather than money to provide an equitable method of distribution in the most humane and efficient manner. It is a system in which all goods and services are available to everyone without the use of money, credits, barter, or any form of debt or servitude. To better understand a resource-based economy, consider this. If all the money in the world disappeared overnight, as long as topsoil, factories, personnel, and other resources were left intact, we could build anything we needed to fulfill most human needs. It is not money that people require, but rather free access to most of their needs without worrying about financial security or having to appeal to the government bureaucracy. In a resource-based economy of abundance, money will become irrelevant. 
We have arrived at a time when new innovation in science and technology can easily provide abundance to all the world's people. It is no longer necessary to perpetuate the conscious withdrawal of efficiency by planned obsolescence perpetrated by our old and outworn profit system. If we are genuinely concerned about the environment and our fellow human beings, if we really want to end territorial disputes, war, crime, poverty, and hunger, we must consciously reconsider the social processes that led us to a world where these factors are common. Like it or not, it is our social processes, political practices, belief systems, profit-based economy, our culture-driven behavioral norms that led to and support hunger, war, disease, and environmental damage. The aim of this new social design is to encourage an incentive system no longer directed toward the shallow and self-centered goals of wealth, property, and power. These new incentives would encourage people toward self-fulfillment and creativity, both materially and spiritually. Now, you may be thinking, what a load of crap. I mean, most Americans in both political parties support the status quo. Most people are only concerned with themselves. They may even claim that egocentrism is human nature. I tend to believe that egocentrism and a zero-sum game is a product of conditioning where the powers that be keep us fighting one another for scraps while detrimental systems perpetuate their wealth. Take a look towards our future. The college education's value has plummeted, while the indebtedness it causes has skyrocketed. Responding to an interaction with Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden in the Democratic debate during the primaries, Andrew Yang wrote an opinion piece titled, Andrew Yang, Yes, Robots Are Stealing Your Job. In it, he states, Fact checkers were quick to point to a study showing that 88% of factory job losses from 2000 to 2010 were caused by automation. He goes on to state that automation doesn't just affect millions of factory workers and truck drivers. Bookkeepers, journalists, retail and food service workers, office clerks, call center employees, and even teachers also face the threat of being replaced by machines. These are some of the most common jobs in America. According to the Council of Economic Advisors in 2016, 83% of jobs paying less than $20 per hour could have substantial parts of their work given over to automation. And advanced degrees won't protect you from this threat. Doctors, accountants, and even lawyers face the same risk. You may find it difficult to believe that it will affect all the professions that Yang mentioned. But even Joe Biden chimed in, agreeing that the fourth industrial revolution is costing jobs. So while we perpetuate a system where one's value and ability to sustain their life and the life of their family is 100% based on employment opportunities that are rapidly evaporating, we are setting ourselves up for a collapse in lieu of an intelligent transition. Yang tweeted on August 12th, talking to, to someone who runs a company that employs large numbers of hourly and gig workers. He says that the number of opportunities has dropped from about 66% from last year. Jobs are not coming back. Uh, Dave Graber, who we'll talk about at, at length uh, later when we start talking about debt, also wrote a book called Bullshit Jobs, A Theory. Graber states that shit jobs tend to be 
blue collar and pay by the hour, whereas bullshit jobs tend to be white collar and sal- salaried. And that since at least the Great Depression, we've been hearing warnings that automation was or was about to be throwing millions out of work. Keynes at the time coined the term technological unemployment. And many assume that the mass unemployment of the 1930s was just a sign of things to come. And while this might make it seem such claims have always been somewhat alarmist, what this book suggests is that the opposite was the case. They were entirely accurate. Automation did, in fact, lead to mass unemployment. We have simply stopped the gap by adding dummy jobs that are effectively made up. A combination of political pressure from the, both the right and left, a deeply held belief feeling that paid employment alone can make one a full moral person, and finally a fear on the part of the upper class already noted by George Orwell in 1933 of what the laboring masses might get up to if they had too much leisure on their hands, has ensured that whatever the underlying reality When it comes to official unemployment figures in wealthy countries, the needle should never jump too far from the range of 3 to 8%. But if one eliminates bullshit jobs from the picture and the real jobs that only exist to support them, one could say that the catastrophe predicted in the 1930s really did happen. To compound that situation, the majority of people seem to believe that healthcare should be tied to employment. Due to the reality we are heading towards, how does that seem sustainable to anyone? As I said, people that perpetuate the status quo are the crazy ones. Many of us can feel in the pit of our stomachs how absolutely detrimental our power structures are. This seems to separate us from so many beneficial things. For instance, fulfillment, happiness, and connectedness. At the end of chapter 3, I mentioned that the next episode would be about consumer debt, which warranted research into many aspects above and beyond simply the fact that consumers amass massive amounts of consumer debt in a relatively short time, due in part by a rampant consumerism, wage stagnation, rise of living costs, planned obsolescence, and many other factors. While all that is true, I wanted to address at the very least, multiple factors that have contributed to this societal condition. Too often, simplistic binary is used to describe an issue, belief, or any topic we deem worthy to discuss. I found that most things are more complex, but not necessarily difficult to understand. While systems thinking is predominantly focused on how things work together going forward, it is also a useful tool in the quest to understand how and why we arrived at our current characteristics. I mean anything and everything that defines our current world at a given point in time, with the acceptance that those characteristics are always in motion and malleable. Even if detrimental systems appear to be indestructible, their appearance of indestructibility is simply a facade, but a seemingly true facade due to detrimental systems being reinforced in our minds with such persistence and longevity. In our lifetime, that is what has been witnessed by us, the perceivers. I also want to let you know that when you support this show by listening and other means, that you're listening to a 100% independent voice, not beholden to anyone. I may agree and or disagree with any issue, policy, party, piece someone wrote, a particular quote, or whatever, but know that the views expressed here are predicated on, if anything, a belief that our world 
can be much better than it is currently, and that all worthwhile outcomes involve effort, forethought, and vision. For instance, I agree with some of the Libertarians' platforms, but then I feel their platform goes off the rails. I also agree with the majority of the Green Party's platforms, but they still do not accept the validity of MMT. Many of their followers might, and some of their candidates might, but in their platform, under M National Debt, they still hold the same talking points as Democrats and Republicans, that the national debt is inherently bad, and that not zeroing it out will harm future generations. That is an example of something I disagree with all three of those parties. And uh, not harming future generations most certainly should be the goal. What we are leaving them is an embarrassment. Although we seem to pat ourselves on the back quite often to congratulate ourselves on what we have achieved. Anyway, at the end of episode three, I said something along the lines of the deficit not being what will harm future generations. It is consumer debt that will achieve that harm if it's not reckoned with. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's show, and I wanted to read an excerpt from Stephanie Keldon's book, The Deficit Myth, to set up the next episode. So the third myth is that the deficit will burden the next generation. Politicians love to trot out this myth, proclaiming that by running deficits, we are ruining the lives of our children and grandchildren, saddling them with crippling debt that they will eventually have to repay. One of the most influential perpetrators of this myth was Ronald Reagan, but even Senator Bernie Sanders has echoed Reagan, saying, I am concerned about the debt. It's not something we should be leaving to our kids and our grandchildren. While this rhetoric is powerful, its economic logic is not. History bears this out. As a share of gross domestic product GDP, the national debt was at its highest, 120% in the period immediately following the Second World War. Yet this was the same period during which the middle class was built. Real median family income soared, and the next generation enjoyed a higher standard of living without the added burden of higher tax rates. The reality is that government deficits don't force financial burdens forward onto future populations. Increasing the deficit doesn't make future generations poorer, and reducing deficits won't make them any richer. Thanks for listening and going on this journey. If you were inspired to create an amazing future, leave us a five-star review, share with your friends, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.